2: The call-up, your go-to podcast on the future stars of major league baseball, part of the Just Baseball Network. As always, I'm your host, Rm Layton, and in today's episode, we are going to be talking about none other than the first round of MLB's draft. And don't worry. This whole week moving forward, we'll have a ton of coverage of the whole draft top to bottom. We also have already had some episodes on the Just Baseball Show breaking down the draft. I'm going to get more in-depth on the first round here. I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to the first 30 selections. I'll try to spill over into compensation rounds if I have some time at the end, but as you know, It always ends up going longer than we think with uh, just how much we like to get into each of these individual players and prospects, but I am very excited to get into this first round. Jack and I did a live stream on our YouTube, which was a big success. If some of you were uh, along for that, thank you so much for joining us on there. It was a ton of fun. We had hundreds and hundreds of questions coming in as we were live streaming the draft and a, a lot of really raw live reactions as we broke down some Really surprising picks, and I think some expected picks as well. Our mock draft got off to a good start, and then as any mock draft, it started to fall apart uh, at the end there. But it was a very, very fun draft. I thought ESPN did a great job. I was really glad to see it get a little bit more TV coverage overall, and also... Just see it be more of an event. Of course, it's never going to compete with NFL's draft or NBA's draft because MLB's drafted players or draftees are going to be selected, and then 99% of the time you won't see them for multiple years or at least a year. So it's a little bit different there. But regardless, it was a much better event than years prior. I thought the coverage was better than it maybe has ever been, and it was a lot of fun to do the live stream as well. But we're going to just kind of break down – Each of the first round selections on this episode and then as I said as the week goes on here we're going to over the next couple days break down the entire draft as a whole uh, talk about some of the teams that really came away winners in this draft some that you know I will never call anybody a loser in a draft because that's pretending I have some crystal ball if a draft is a little bit of a head scratcher I'll talk about that and why. Maybe the strategy is a little bit head-scratching to me, but it could end up being right. So I think it's dumb to call uh, anybody a draft loser per se, uh, but I think there are some clear winners and some teams that approach the draft with a, Very tangible plan, and you could see how maybe some of the picks unfolded the way that they had hoped, and you could see them kind of execute that plan, and I'll I'll tease some of that as we talk about some of this first round, because talking about the Texas Rangers at pick number three will be kind of the lead-in to that, so before I jump into this draft and start with Jackson Holliday at number one, I also wanted to give a shout-out to Matt Mervis, friend of the show who we talked about a lot on the podcast and interviewed a little while back. I just reported on Twitter, uh, for those who may not be on Twitter, uh, that Matt Mervis has been promoted to AAA or will be promoted at the end of the All-Star break. Extremely exciting for an undrafted free agent. I know... It's a bit of an asterisk when we talk about undrafted, given that he was in the 2020 class and signed and had his pick of the litter. When it comes to teams, probably would have been a a 7th round guy or anywhere between the 7th and 10th round. Regardless, really awesome story. Gets the call up now to triple a and I don't think the big leagues will be too far away really excited for Matt Mervis and it was uh, very fun to be able to report that and, and break that news and I'm excited to see how he gets acclimated in Iowa I know he's going to keep doing what he's doing but let's start with Jackson Holiday here son of Matt Holiday if, if you've probably heard it a million times at this point but I feel like if I don't say it it's malpractice and there's a lot of kids in this draft sons of big leaguers who make me feel old uh, which is really crazy because I have not really felt old I just turned 25 on draft day actually and uh, obviously this is one of the first times we're watching some of these names go off the board I'm like man I mean Carl Crawford was one of my favorite players at one point and I'm watching his son get drafted and we'll get to that pick later in the first round as well but uh, talking about Jackson Holiday we had him going number one in our mock draft and That wasn't necessarily because we thought that Jackson Holiday was a better prospect or player than Drew Jones. It was more of what we were hearing. It just seemed to be there was a little bit more steam uh, with Jackson Holiday going one than Drew Jones. I I think that you can look at Drew Jones and Jackson Holiday as somewhat of a toss-up at this point because they're both so young. They both are extremely athletic, have room for physical projection, and have the bloodlines. There's a lot to like from both ends. I I, I like a left-handed hitting shortstop. Of course, that is really exciting. You could kind of see a, a Corey Seeger type of projection there with probably better defense given where Seeger's defense has kind of bottomed out a little bit over the last couple of years. I think that Holiday could be an above-average defender. There's some similarities there. And what I like about Holiday is he looks like he still has a lot more maturing to do physically. He's got the baby face. He is strong. Don't don't get or don't make any mistake of that. But I do think that there's a little bit more room for physicality there. He's got about 15 to 20 pounds I think that he could put on, no problem. The Orioles, they go out and get a- another infielder who just continues to make this system ridiculously good. It didn't matter who they were going to pick. It was going to be a top 50 prospect no matter what, just about, unless they went you know, the Tamar Johnson route. Then uh, maybe he would be kind of closer to the 75 range in the top 100 list. But regardless, Jackson Holiday, potential tools across the board. I think above average to plus tools basically across the board. I am interested to see how much power is in there. It's very hard to gauge from a high school guy with limited video, who I admittedly have not seen too much of in person, exactly where Holiday projects in terms of raw power. But if he matures anything like his father, uh, he will be able to impact the baseball just fine. And we've already seen him uh, be able to do that, at least at a Level where you can project above average, it's more of a question of is there plus pop in there, uh, and I think there will be down the line. I love everything about Jackson Holiday's game. It's really hard to poke a hole in there, and there's no doubt that that was a very great spot to be in if you're the Baltimore Orioles picking between Drew Jones and Jackson Holiday, You can't go wrong. They go with the shortstop with the number two pick, the D backs go with the outfielder and drew Jones was the selection there. And drew Jones, I think is already uh, reportedly agreed to roughly a slot value, uh, signing bonus. So it's going to be very interesting to see what Jackson holiday signing bonus looks at looks like, but drew Jones, son of Andrew Jones, surprise, surprise center fielder with elite defensive potential. Again, surprise, surprise, a plus plus runner with above average to plus power potential as well. Interested to see how the hit tool develops for Drew Jones, and I I like the swing. I really do. It has grown on me more and more the more I watch of him very quick. He's able to get to high pitches. Uh, I think the path is pretty efficient. He seems to use the field pretty well. Saw a lot of video of him going, you know, back up the middle, uh, with easy backspin to dead center, things like that. So there, there's a lot to like there with Drew Jones, obviously. Bloodlines, of course, very, very strong as well. And if he's able to play the defense that a lot of people know, uh, a lot of scouts think he's capable of, I mean, this is a very exciting prospect because plus-plus speed, ability to impact the baseball, and we'll see on the field to hit, but I, I think that the, it's definitely more advanced than most prospects with his tools out of high school There's plenty to like there. He's also 6'4", 180, so there's some physical projection there as well. I think plus power is very easily in the tank here. Imagine an outfield, which we could see in a couple years, of Drew Jones, Corbin Carroll, and Alec Thomas. That's three legitimate center fielders in your outfield. A ball may never hit the ground. That is something that's very exciting for the D-backs. They took the best player available here. I think if Drew Jones goes one, they probably take Jackson holiday too. Uh, it seemed like those were the two clear cut best players in this draft, in my opinion. And we saw them go one, two It was more on preference. And we'll see how the signing bonus situation shakes out uh, between those two players. Uh, but I, I do think that you cannot go wrong with either of them and both teams, both fans of both teams should be very, very happy. Perhaps the biggest surprise of the entire draft was the third selection where Kumar rocker goes to the Texas Rangers, and Rocker reportedly signed for about 5.2 million dollars, which would be just about 2.4, if I'm not mistaken, or 2.5 million dollars below the signing bonus uh, slot value. So the Rangers. They rolled the dice here on the prospect who was for a while expected to be the 1-1 pick in 2021's draft. Still ended up going 10th overall, and we know kind of what happened there with the New York Mets and Kumar Rocker, where the murkiness with the medicals and the Mets' unwillingness to really give it all or even make any substantial offer or really any offer period kind of let that fizzle out, and Rocker decided to not go back to school but pitched A couple outings in independent league baseball a few months ago, and not even probably a month ago, and leading into the last couple weeks, and was it was enough for the Texas Rangers? It was enough for Chris Young and the general manager. And according to reports, the medicals looked a lot better this time around. They were a little bit more open out in the open and and a little bit less, uh, I would say, secretive there. Scott Boris, his agent, also came out and said, "Hey." Uh, it was really just a minor shoulder scope that was done uh, around that time or shortly after the draft last year. He's already 100% and it was kind of backed up by his ability to throw 99 and in in independently games and uh, it looks just like the Kumar Rocker we came to know or if anything, even a tick better uh, with the stuff. So that was enough for the Rangers and not only do they get a guy that you could still make the case if healthy is the best arm in the draft. I don't think it's crazy to say. I mean, everyone's looking at Dylan Lesko. Everyone's looking at some of these other pitching prospects who easily could be the quote-unquote best pitchers in the draft, but Kumar Rocker has been proven as one of the best pitchers in college baseball, has been long considered a first-round prospect since he was in high school, then in college, again, was considered the 1-1 pick for a while, fell to 10 in 2021 with the Mets, and that was even considered a fall, and then we see him now get selected third overall. So there's a ton of upside here with the 6'5", 245-pound power pitcher from Vanderbilt. The stuff is ridiculous. Again, the fastball touch 99. And you're getting that guy for well under slot value. To save roughly $2.5 million here, you're able to allocate that elsewhere. And I know I said I wasn't going to talk about the other rounds in this episode because I want to wait and see what some of the signing bonuses are if we can. And I think we'll start to see some of those trickle in over the next couple days. But also just want to see how the rest of the draft fully shakes out. That being said, this is one of the instances where I got to talk about it because the Kumar Rocker pick also allowed for the Rangers to go take Brock Porter. And Brock Porter was probably one of my favorite pitchers in this draft and was my second best prep prospect pitching wise in this draft. And Porter started to fall and once he fell out of the first round, there were some signability concerns and teams you know couldn't really meet the asking price. He's also a Scott Boris client, and it seems like the Rangers had a package deal here for the most part where they get Kumar Rocker, they underslot him, and then they drafted Brock Porter in the fourth round, and I can promise you if they do pull this deal off, it's going to be for close to first round money, so Porter's going to get similar to what we saw With the Padres and right-hander Cole Wilcox in 2020, as Wilcox fell out of the first round, the Padres had some money allocated and they drafted him in the third round and offered him $3.3 million to sign, which is first round money. I think we're going to see something similar to that with Brock Porter, maybe not quite as much, but the $2.5 million that the Rangers saved, that's going to go towards Brock Porter. And now they... Roughly got two first-round talents there with their two picks, being able to underslot Kumar Rocker and then get creative and go get Brock Porter. Of course, Wilcox, great pitching prospect, ended up being one of the important pieces in the Blake Snell package and is now with the Rays. A tad risky, absolutely, but I would also argue that being able to get another first round pick basically in Brock Porter, who we had going in the top 15 in our mock draft hedges some of that risk because even if rocker doesn't reach his ceiling, the draft of rocker allowed you to kind of take another first round pick and throw multiple irons in the fire. It's like trading back, with your early first round pick to trade up with your second round pick and have multiple first round picks. It's a no brainer. uh, If you don't have anybody that you specifically love at that selection and the Rangers, we're going to break down their draft as the week goes on. I really like what they did there. You go to number four here and it's Tamar Johnson to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, There's not much to break down here, uh, given that Tamar was expected to go top five, I think, in this draft. He was even floated as the draft got closer within the hours to be a potential number one pick. He was a consideration, one of the best hit tools that we've seen from a high schooler in a very, very long time. Has the makeup, has all of the the intangibles that you like to see. What was interesting, though, is that the Pirates seem very confident, or at least seem to be giving the impression that they feel good about Tamar Johnson's ability to stick it short. He was drafted as a shortstop. He is going to get every shot as a shortstop, though there are some questions about his range and his arm and whether he can stay there. I will never say that a high schooler cannot play shortstop until I see for a full season in the minor leagues that he cannot play shortstop. There's so much that can change. You can get quicker. You can strengthen your arm. These guys are still so young. I would never swear off a kid from being able to adapt and learn at shortstop. And Tamar is a good enough athlete. His bat is obviously the calling card here. And with the struggles of Nick Gonzalez, who is limited to second base and continues to battle injuries, Tamar Johnson could lap him very soon and also offers as much offensive upside as anybody that the pirates could have drafted there at the number four overall pick. Maybe one other guy that offers as much upside, but also is probably one of the more polarizing prospects is the number five pick here. And and I liked it from the Washington Nationals because their system stinks. I'll be honest, it stinks. And they don't have a lot of ways to make it better other than trading Josh Bell, which we almost can guarantee they will. uh, But given that he's a rental, the the return won't be that crazy. And also Juan Soto, as we've been talking about that on the Just Baseball show. And that's going to be one of the most, I think, annoying but interesting stories that baseball will be perpetuating over and over and forever until he finally finds a destination or the Nationals pony up and give him 500 or whatever he wants for a shorter duration of time, more average annual value. That's an entirely different episode. Go check out the Just Baseball Show for that. Uh, But Elijah Green is the highest upside guy you could get at five here uh, in terms of all around, right? I don't know if it would have made sense if, if Tamar Johnson and Elijah Green were there for the Nationals. I would prefer Elijah Green for them because they need well-rounded, impact, five-tool, high-upside type of prospects, and they don't have many of those, Elijah Green offers that. I love Tamar. I really do. I, I just think that the, the Nationals need... A potential superstar here, and I think that Elijah Green can be that. Uh, his father was a tight end in the NFL. He's an athletic freak. The only reason why we saw Elijah Green kind of fall out of the number one overall consideration is that he's pretty maxed out physically. He's 6'3, 225. And when you look at all the other high school guys, they're more in the 180 range, uh, 175 even. They have a lot more physical projection there. Elijah Green is filled the heck out, but he's also a guy that was going to IMG Academy, which is Half a school and really half just athletic time all the time, probably working out, doing a little bit more, has the football bloodlines. It's a little bit different here. I don't really care that he's maxed out because as he is currently built, he is built to be a physical specimen, even at the highest level, and will continue to get more explosive, I think, as he gets twitchier and just continues to get more comfortable with his body. So there still is some projection there. It's just not going to be definition wise. I actually spoke to my high school coach about Elijah Green, who coaches on the summer circuit, one of the best teams in the country. Coach Brandon Barrera as well, so I'll talk about him. He coached against Elijah Green on many occasions. They would often play Elijah Green's summer team in the finals, and he saw him a lot. And he said, this guy's defense is as good as anybody's that he's seen in center field. Up there with Drew Jones even too. The way he's able to run down baseball is how fast he is. Also how hard he impacts the baseball. There is some slight swing and misconcern and we won't really know what it looks like until he's in the professional ranks. But the bat is so quick. The swing is pretty simple. I think he can work that out. That seems to be more approach and just covering the top of the zone like so many other prospects. But I love that the defense is earning high marks in center. His jumps, his routes are good for a high schooler. We know that there's big-time power potential. We know that the speed is there. The Nationals really need to hit on this pick here, and I think he was the highest upside guy available for them at number five. Coming in with the sixth selection is the Miami Marlins, and they took Jacob Barry out of LSU. And this was a surprising pick for me in some ways. I, I had a feeling that they were going to take Jacob Barry, but I also... Had a strong feeling that Brooks Lee, shortstop out of Cal Poly, would not be there when the Marlins were selecting. I figured he would probably go either three or four or five. Honestly, the guy thought he could go at any of those spots when even I thought there was a chance that the Orioles could underslot him at one, even though we had Holiday in our mock. It just seemed like Brooks Lee, switch hitter as well. Good shortstop with staying power there and some ability to impact the baseball a high floor bat with staying power at shortstop seemed like a no-brainer for the Marlins, especially given that they don't really have a shortstop at the big league level. Jazz Chisholm's a second baseman. Miguel Rojas is you know, aging. And Khalil Watson, who they drafted last year, is not with the team right now or not with the organization uh, with dealing with off-the-field issues and dealing with on-the-field issues even as well with the Marlins. And that seems to be a messy situation over there. So I, I was thinking you know, maybe you look – For a shortstop here, the Marlins ultimately go for the best bat, and and I'm okay with that because the Marlins, if we know one thing about Miami, it's that they cannot develop offensive prospects, and we just continue to see them struggle and struggle when drafting and developing offensive prospects. So they go for the safest bat, Jacob Berry just offensively is the safest bat in this draft switch hitter with plus power potential a plus hit tool and does not strike out he struck out eight percent of the time at LSU against the best competition in the country the Marlins seem confident and DJ Sevilik said who's uh, the basically the head of their entire drafting and, and now probably one of the lead of their development side of things as well and now that Gary Dembo is gone He says that he thinks Jacob Berry can stick at third. I've watched Jacob Berry play the outfield. I've watched Jacob Berry play third. I would bet on him winding up at first base. Still, I think that you can hope for an Andrew Vaughn type of outcome here where Berry climbs through the minor leagues maybe in one season or less. And the Marlins really need that because they need offensive help now. um, And they also really need guys that they can't mess up really in the development process. Barry doesn't need much developing offensively. I think, you know, we obviously have to see what he's going to do through the upper levels in the minors. I think he'll take care of high A pitching. They may even start him in double if they really want to kind of like Andrew Vaughn was started. They said the Marlins front office did that. They feel like he's very close to big league ready already. So that is probably one of the things that could lead to him starting in double. But the other side of it is where does he play defensively? And does he need more time to get reps defensively? The Marlins are somewhat set When it comes to first base between Garrett Cooper and for now Jesus Aguilar and the DH spot as well with Soler, who's not great, but he kind of fits in there too. It's going to be interesting to see how the Marlins navigate this. No matter what, you can't have too many bats, uh, even if they're limited defensively, if you're the Marlins. And they went with the safest offensive prospect they could find with the closest proximity. I'm okay with that pick overall. Very interested to see how the defense develops, and I will stay tuned on that and uh, give some of my reports as I watch more of him defensively. With the seventh pick, the Cubs went with a bit of a surprise as well, taking Cade Horton, a powerful right hander out of Oklahoma. And Cade Horton was a surprise, but I actually liked the pick for them because as we were doing the live stream, even I'm looking and I'm like, man, if you could trade draft picks. It would make so much sense for the Cubs to trade back in the first and then just take a pitcher a little bit later in the first round. And we were talking about maybe even a Cade Horton because the Cubs really need more pitching. Offensively, they look pretty solid prospect-wise. A lot of guys are making their way towards the upper minors, and we've even seen some guys break into the bigs like Christopher Morel. They were likely thrilled that Jordan Wicks fell to them last year, left-handed pitching prospect out of Kansas State, and he has been great so far. DJ hers, another left-handed pitching prospect, has been emerging, but they were really lacking a right-hander outside of Caleb Killian, who they acquired in the Chris Bryant deal. And I think this was the exact guy they needed, a powerful right-hander with upside. And he's probably going to be an underslot guy given that he was expected to go late in the first and he ends up going at the number seven overall pick that allows the Cubs to be a little bit more creative. They swung for the fences in this draft, and I'll talk about that uh, over the next couple days as we break down each team's draft. But I still like the pick because it not only gives them what they need, but it also allowed them to shoot a little bit higher with their other picks and overslot slot in some other spots as well. Horton's got a powerful fastball and a nasty slider. His fastball is heavy. There's not really anybody like that in the system, so it's it's a much-needed profile for them as well. 6'1", 2'11", ball really explodes out of his hand, and and again, I really like the slider. Already showing a feel for a third pitch. This guy was a two-way player at Oklahoma and also had Tommy John surgery, so missed last year. So not a lot of innings on his arm in terms of being able to develop in that way, and then also was worried about being a two-way player. So I do think that there's a lot of upward trajectory that that the Cubs are kind of buying right at the bottom of the upward slope. He finished his season with five dominant starts even through the postseason as well. And I think if I said this a couple of times, but if there were another 20 games in the season and Cade Horton made five more starts, he probably would have been a no-brainer top 10 pick. And I think the Cubs were acknowledging that and buying in right before his stock spikes, which I think it will when he gets off to a good start to his professional career. This is a good pick outside the box by the Cubs, and I like it there. Coming in at the number eight selection, it was the Minnesota Twins who took Brooks Lee, and I think the Twins were just thrilled to have Brooks Lee fall into their lap. I'm not even sure that he was necessarily someone that they were expecting to fall to them, and it's just it's an awesome selection for them, because they unfortunately have had the frustrations with Royce Lewis, uh, and that's one of the things that that really sucks, because Royce Lewis was looking really good, but now tears his ACL again, going to be out for a long time, we don't know what the future holds with Carlos Correa, probably more likely he goes elsewhere than stays there, and they don't really have that many other middle infield prospects, I don't think that Austin Martin can play shortstop, and he is already having a pretty bad year their outfield looks good, Uh, there's there's a lot to like in a lot of different spots, but they could definitely have used some more middle infield depth. So it works really well with Brooks Lee there. But aside from that, he was just the best player available. So other than maybe Kevin Parada, who I would argue could have been an option there as well, if you wanted an infielder that wasn't a catcher, uh, this was the best player available. I loved the pick by the Twins. Brooks Lee's a switch hitter with some of the best contact rates in college, as well as pretty impressive 90th percentile exit velo numbers. I like this kid a lot out of Cal Poly. He's a really good all-around player with staying power. It's short. you got to be thrilled with this pick, and he might instantly be the top prospect in the twin system at this point. Uh, with, with the injury to Royce Lewis, I think he may take the top spot. Next up was the Kansas City Royals, who with the ninth pick took Gavin Cross, outfielder out of Virginia Tech. Cross had a wonderful year for the maybe one of the most surprising teams in college baseball this past season. Cross, left-handed hitter, 6'3", 210, Big time power potential, probably as much swing and miss concern as any first round college bat. But the Royals, look, they don't develop pitching well, kind of the opposite of the Marlins, but they do develop hitting well. And you look at the MJ Melendez progression or the Nick Prado progression, guys that had disastrous years through the lower levels of the minors and then had some of the best seasons we saw in the minor leagues last year, and now both are contributing at the big league level. They had some swing and miss concern. Prado will always have some swing and miss concern, but it's developed really well. Melendez struck out 36% of the time and now strikes out roughly half that mark and, and much less than that even at the big league level. This is right around where we expected Cross to go. And when you look at the Royals' kind of future in the outfield, we know they're kind of set in the infield. Melendez, Prado, Vinny Pascantino, Bobby Witt Jr. They're somewhat covered in the infield side of things. But as as the outfield continues to uh, look a little bit uncertain, Andrew Benatendi set to be a free agent after this year. And I know you just draft best player available, but these have to be things that are crossing your mind as you're looking at your young, controllable core and the prospect situation that you're at the pick makes a ton of sense for the Royals and, and cross instantly becomes one of their best hitting prospects. Given if you're assuming that, you know, Prado, Pascantino, Melendez, they're all graduating. Cross is a very exciting bat. We'll see how the swing and miss plays in here, but if he can take his walks and hit lefties at a decent clip, I, I do think that there's a lot to like with Gavin cross and uh, Royals fans should be, Pretty excited about the offensive potential that Gavin Cross has, and I have a lot of confidence in the Royals' offensive side of things development-wise. Coming in at the number 10 pick was another surprise, a guy that we had pegged for late first round, pitcher out of Gonzaga. It's Gabriel Hughes, who it makes sense the more I thought about it. And Gabriel Hughes is a sinker-slider guy, 6'4", 220 pounds, big power arm, And talk about an organization that really needed more arms. We saw them swing big for Jaden Hill last year in the second round, who has not pitched yet professionally uh, as when they drafted him, he was recovering from the early stages of Tommy John surgery. So still we have yet to see him debut professionally, but we saw them swing big for Hill there. And we saw them go very pitching heavy in this draft again. Offensively, they're pretty good system-wise and we've seen them continue to develop their top 5 uh, is a very exciting five position players. So it makes sense that they went very heavy with the arms here in Hughes Arguably possessing one of the more exciting sliders in the draft given his arm speed, the presence of the slider already, and the potential that the pitch can have. I think it could easily be plus or plus plus as it develops closer to just uh, 55 to 60 grade now, but has a lot of potential there in the 89 to 90 range. His fastball sits 94 to 97 with some life. And that's the thing, too, is he is so big, powerful, and it's pretty effortless for him. I think we could see that fastball reach comfortably the upper 90s and that slider be more in the 90 to 92 range sliders play well at altitude we've seen it even with guys like Chad cool so I I think someone like Gabriel Hughes could be very dominant and a perfect fit for the Colorado Rockies you can understand why they were targeting him there then you look at the pick number 11 here and you got to be thrilled if you're the Mets because Kevin Parada falls to you and I feel like almost everybody had Parada pegged as a surefire top 10 pick and a likely top seven pick. We had him going fifth in our mock, but it was a little bit surprising just the way that the the prep players flew off the board in the early part, and then also having Kumar Rocker slide in there at three, and Horton at seven, it caused some college bats to fall a little bit, and of course, even Hughes at 10. So Parada and his, I believe, 26 homers and high, high floor bat they fought, that falls to the Mets at 11. And there's some defensive questions with Parada, uh, receiving-wise. He's a little bit shaky, but he has a big-time arm, and I think he can develop into a decent catcher. But there are some questions as to whether he can stick there at the highest level. Regardless, you're thrilled to get this kind of bat at 11, Uh, this kind of upside offensively. His numbers last year were video game level. Uh, If it weren't for Ivan Melendez, I'd argue that he might have had the best season offensively in all of college baseball, and the Mets are just happy to get that college bat here. You're hoping that he can develop as a catcher. That's the plan, but regardless, you're just pumped to get this kind of bat and this kind of offensive upside at number 11. Number 12, the Tigers go with Jace Young, and this is exactly where I was thinking he would go, of course, brother of Josh Young. Jace has a chance to be just as good, if not better. He has above average to plus power potential, above average to plus hit tool. I mean, that that's two things that you'll take right there from a left-handed bat who can play a decent second base. Uh, the Tigers, they take the college bat that they like here. I think it was a solid selection. You know, nothing crazy one way or another. Just a really solid college bat who should climb the minors pretty quickly with Potential to impact and hit pretty consistently. Bat-to-ball with plus power potential. Sign me up at second base. Very, very solid profile. It's like Dan Ugla with more of a hit tool. I'm interested in that and probably more defensive ability as well. I think that the Tigers uh, were, were happy to get Jace Young there, and that's a guy that I think was always on their board at number 12. Zach Neto goes 13 to the LA angels netto out of Campbell university put up video game numbers. And I know it was Campbell. We also saw him hit in 16 games on the Cape where he was really good there. He played well against high end competition. He's got a crazy leg kick. And I'm very curious to see how that monstrous leg kick plays at the professional level with high spin fastballs and three different speeds and all of the challenges of timing. But netto has given us no reason so far to believe that he cannot hit high-level pitching, and Neto's numbers are just comical. I think he slugged over 700 at Campbell and, again, had good numbers against high competition on the Cape or just against, uh, you know, really talented college teams for those series as well. Neto is a guy that's probably going to stick at shortstop. He's going to climb through the minors, you'd hope, pretty quickly unless that timing issue with the big leg kick becomes a factor. But the Angels, they get their shortstop here uh, after going super arm-heavy over the last couple years. They go with the bat here at the 13th overall pick 14th. It's the Mets. Again, they get that compensation selection for not drafting or or excuse me for not signing Kumar rocker last year. This time we were wondering kind of how they were going to approach the two picks. They go college with the 11th pick, as we know with Kevin Parada. Then they go high school with Jet Williams, a guy that I admittedly don't know a ton on. He's a 5'8", 175-pound shortstop. He's got a really good chance to stick there, has exciting tools, and the reports are strong on Jet Williams. But this is just a high school shortstop with big upside, even though he's a little bit limited uh, size-wise and projection-wise. The tools are very projectable, uh, and he continues to get better at tapping into him. The Mets liked something here, obviously, and they go with the upside high schooler here at 14. I do wonder if they would have went with Neto if he was there or if they were pretty set on going with a prep guy who they can really dream on. Regardless, you got two first-round picks in the middle of the first round, and they go high floor college bat and then high ceiling high schooler. That's a good balance there from the Mets. With the 15th pick, the Padres went with Dylan Lesko, and Lesko was my number one pitcher in the draft. Uh, He's a prep right-hander from Georgia, and is explosive. I mean, the stuff is crazy. The arm speed might be some of the best in the draft. He's 6'2, 195. So not as big as some of the other guys and Tommy John surgery kind of impacted his stock. I think we saw him pitch a little bit more uh, over the course of the spring with the way his stuff just continued to get better and better. Each time we saw him, there was a good chance that we probably could have saw Dylan Lesko and uh, you know, in that top 10 comfortably, but to, to receive Tommy John or undergo Tommy John surgery and still go 15th overall to the Padres is a testament to how talented this kid is. While Tommy John surgery doesn't impact draft stock like it used to, or really much at all. You have to wonder if, you know, maybe the Rockies take a chance on Lesko if he didn't undergo Tommy John surgery, because they did just draft another younger, you know, raw pitching prospect in Jaden Hill last year, you know, right in the midst of, his Tommy John surgery recovery. So we see the Padres go with Lesko. I love the upside here. He is electric. Still, like I said, going into the draft, one of my favorite, if not my favorite pitching prospect in this draft and could be a steal here for the Padres, but they got to be a little bit more patient than other teams have to be with the other arms that they drafted a very intriguing selection at number 16, because there was a big question of where's chase Delauder going to go going into last college season. Chase DeLauder out of James Madison University was a candidate to go 1-1. People were talking about DeLauder and saying, hey, you know, maybe this guy is the number one pick after a really strong summer on the Cape. Again, video game numbers uh, at James Madison. I know it's not the best competition in the world, but when you're hitting over 400 with power and speed and a big dude at 6'4", 235, there's a lot to like there. And when you lead the Cape in homers, that's usually going to get you into the top 10 pick conversation. Unfortunately, he got blown up a little bit in a series to open up the season against Florida State. He has a little bit of a drifting issue. His lower half can be inconsistent. You'll see him kind of lose the backside. Bat will drag, sap some of the power. Still is able to tap into some impressive power, even with the lower half you know, needing some work and a bit inconsistent and not staying on the backside totally. He still got really hot after that Florida State series and hit 437, 576, 828 over 24 games until he broke his foot sliding into second base and that cut a season short. He probably could have hit his way back into the top 10 consideration, but unfortunately that did not happen due to the broken foot. So we see him kind of fall, still goes pretty high here at 16th overall to the Cleveland guardians and the guardians really could have went any direction here. They're as deep as any organization in baseball pitching wise and middle infield wise. So if I were to pick one thing, I would have went with the outfield, but again, we always talk about it teams draft by best player available. And this was probably their best player available with the caveat being who they think they could sign because I'll get to pick 18 in a second, who was a guy I'm sure they wanted, but felt like they probably couldn't sign uh, for the price that they wanted to pay given their plans for the rest of the draft. DeLotter should be an interesting case because with the right organization that can really kind of help him iron out those lower half issues, perfect the swing a little bit more. He could really pop because we know that there's bat speed. We know there's athleticism even for his huge frame. He can play plus defense in a corner. I think he can play passable defense in center. There's plenty to like with DeLotter. He's just going to kind of have to work out the lower half issues with the swing. And I know the Guardians are well aware of that, and it'll be interesting to see how he develops, but a lot of their offensive prospects have developed nicely, and he just is another exciting prospect to add to already one of baseball's best systems. At 17, the Phillies go with the son of Carl Crawford, Justin Crawford, who had a lot of helium leading into the draft and ends up playing his way into the first round out of Bishop Gorman High School in Nevada. Shocker, Justin Crawford is probably the fastest player in this draft. 80-grade runner by Kylie McDaniels grades, easy 70-runner probably, according to anybody else. Like You're getting a plus-plus or top-scale runner regardless, just like his father. But what I like about Justin Crawford is the swing from the left side is very simple, bat-to-ball oriented, but a ton of bat speed. And he has a feel and I think potential for at least average or better power. He's 6'3", 175, more room to fill out. If he fills out another 15, 20 pounds, there's easy above average power with the way his swing uh, can generate just easy bat speed. And and with his athleticism and twitchiness, I don't think he's ever going to be a guy that's selling out for lift given his elite speed. But I think if there's an ability to tap into a little bit more of that pop, which I think he will as he fills out, the bat speed will allow for him to naturally backspin balls and run into some some at least above average power. Plus plus speed, above average power, exciting defense in center field. The Phillies really needed a high upside prospect, and Justin Crawford is exactly that. Bloodlines as well. I, I liked this pick from the Phillies, and I really liked a lot of the picks in the first round, if you couldn't tell, uh, because it seemed like each team was kind of drafting the way I was hoping they would approach it. And the Phillies, they get their guy here in Justin Crawford. With the 18th pick, this was one of the other big surprises. The Reds go with Cam Collier, and it's crazy because everything I was hearing on Cam Collier was it's unlikely that he falls past seven to the Cubs. Even the Pirates were looking at him uh, with their selection at four, even some rumblings of underslot consideration at number one. Ultimately, he falls, and then you know through the teens— It was one of those things where none of those teams were going to want to meet that crazy slot value that, or excuse me, the crazy asking price above slot value that he's probably demanding. So most teams go out and they just get the guy that was on their board all along because none of those teams were expecting Collier to fall to them. Collier is the youngest player in this draft at 17 years old, skipped his senior year of high school, went the junior college route to Chipola College in in Florida, which is a pipeline for Juco talent and Has produced some names off the top of my head. I think Jose Bautista, Tyler Flowers. There's definitely better players as well than Tyler Flowers. But several, several big leaguers and impact big leaguers at that. Uh, They've produced a lot of talent out of there. And Collier put up ridiculous numbers as a 17-year-old on that team. Then went to the Cape, held his own there. You know, didn't dominate, but he was a 17-year-old playing against 21-year-old draft-eligible guys. And... Really held his own and, and looked impressive. He's got a plus arm. Should be fine at third base. The feel to hit is really impressive. The swing reminds me of MJ Melendez. There's plenty to like here with Cam Collier. The fact that the Reds were able to, to hopefully meet whatever his asking price is and maximize value here with one of the best prospects in the draft at pick 18. You got to be thrilled if you're a Reds fan. It'll be interesting to see how how they approach the rest of the draft given that The overslot or presumptive overslot for Collier is going to limit their ability to spend on other selections much, uh, or at least compared to what the initial plan probably was. But I like this swinging for the fence move here by the Reds. Their system is already much, much, much improved. I know they traded guys to get there, uh, but they'll probably trade Luis Castillo. And with the addition of Cam Collier, this is a ridiculously good farm system. Number 19, This was one of those where I think it was best player available for the Oakland A's. They take Daniel Susak, and he's a catcher out of Arizona. Another dude that's very similar to Parada. The bat is extremely exciting and really good. And I think there's it's a big league bat. Catching wise, good arm. Questions on the receiving. He's 6'4, 220. He's a big dude. I don't know how well he moves but we know Oakland has never really been deterred by drafting the bat-first catcher like Tyler Soderstrom because if they really hit, you still have a really good prospect. I think Susak's capable of playing you know, maybe a corner outfield spot as well. This was, I think, Oakland taking a guy that they did not expect to fall to them. I didn't expect Susak to fall there. I didn't expect Susac honestly, to make it past uh, the Mets' second pick because I thought the Mets would take— I didn't think Parada would be there at 11, so I thought the Mets would take Susak with one of their two picks— or the LA Angels would take him. So it was surprising to see him fall, but ultimately, Oakland takes the best player available here in Daniel Sussac. And even though they have Shea Langleyers coming up at the big league level and they may trade Sean Murphy, have him for now, this is why we always say, yes. Teams are aware and thinking about what they need organizationally. But you just never know with baseball. There's so much uncertainty. You draft the best player available. Susak's bat is ridiculous. The power is really exciting. Uh, He's obviously very physical. And I think the bat to ball is is pretty darn good for a guy of his size and his power potential. I'm sure Oakland was pleasantly surprised for Susak to be there at 19. We go to 20. The defending champs, the Atlanta Braves. They do what they always do when they take an arm that you you weren't really expecting where nobody mocked to them at number 20, and this time it's Owen Murphy. Owen Murphy out of Illinois, 6'1", 190, athletic, similar like Spencer Strider, low release point, riding fastball, and nasty slider. His fastball right now sits more in the low 90s, but it plays up because of the shape and riding action. So again, I mean, that's something that I think the, the Braves are identifying. And then his mid-80s slider is sharp with late break. He also can manipulate it into more of a cutter. I've liked what I've seen in the video of Murphy. I don't know what the slot value, if he's going to get the slot value here or if they underslot him a little bit. He might be underslotted a little bit. But what's really impressive about him is, again, an emphasis on the athleticism. He was Illinois' Gatorade Player of the Year, posted a .12 ERA in 58 in the thirds innings and then also hit 548 with 18 pumps. This is a very talented and athletic athletic player that should be a very fun pitcher to watch. I'm not deterred. No one should be deterred by 6-1 pitchers anymore and when you have the kind of athleticism to back it up, the fastball with ride, sn- slider that you can snap and we'll see which pitch develops. If he can kind of get a feel for the changeup, I'm sure he will. As the Braves continue to do a pretty good job developing their pitching prospects, Owen Murphy's intriguing, but I I want to see what the Signing bonus looks like for Murphy before I, I fully give it a grade draft-wise. If it's full slot value, then you know we'll have to just wait and see. If they save some money here on top of the profile that seems to fit what they're looking for, then I'm interested, and I think it's a very solid selection. With the 21st pick in the draft, we saw the Mariners go with Cole Young, shortstop out of Pennsylvania, and Cole Young, I've heard nothing but amazing things about the way this guy approaches the game. And just about his hit tool. This is a plus hit tool, I think, from a high school guy. Arguably the second best hit tool out of any high schooler outside of Tamar Johnson. Of course, maybe either of the one or two picks, You could make that case too. But outside of the top five guys, I would say this is the best hit tool right here with Cole Young. Left-handed bat, staying power at shortstop, has hit at every single summer circuit, like every stop Everything I've heard from anybody that's seen him has been really impressed with just the bat-to-ball skills and just the well-roundedness of his game. Safe pick for a high schooler, but still the upside that you can dream on. Above-average runner, the plus-hit tool. I'm curious what kind of impact he's going to have. He's six foot, about 180. I don't think power is ever going to be a big part of his game. But if he can develop into a 15 or 20 home run guy, you have a very exciting prospect here. I don't know what the power looks like. But I do believe in the hit tool. I do believe in the staying power at short. I do believe in the makeup and all of the things I've heard. This is a solid prospect who was always kind of pegged as a late first rounder. And I think for a team that probably just really liked what they saw with the Mariners, they had a lot of confidence in the makeup and in the profile. Safe pick for a high schooler, 18 years old, and still plenty of upside. Power is going to be the thing to monitor. But the Mariners get a true shortstop and a left-handed hitting shortstop at that. 22nd overall is one of the players that you could probably make the case could be the first guy to break into the big leagues out of this first round. Of course, there's probably some relievers like Ben Joyce or some other guys that could, you know, maybe make that fast track to a big league bullpen. But Cooper Jerpy by the St. Louis Cardinals here. One of the best pitchers in all of college baseball this year out of Oregon State. Left-handed pitcher, put up great numbers, deceptive low three quarters release point that is extremely hard to pick up on top of the fact that his command just continued to get better and better each time he got out on the mountain as he developed and matured as a college pitcher, 21 years old with a really good field of pitch, even though he has the funky delivery 91 to 93, he could grab a four or five with the fastball also mix in mixes in an above average curveball, a good change up. All of those pitches play up thanks to his deception. And as he continues to get better with the command, could be a very very solid middle of the rotation starter but with the uniqueness of his delivery and the just pure domination he had over left-handed hitters last year or this past season in college he could be somebody that gets fast-tracked as a swing man to the big leagues gets a bunch of left-handed hitters out and could be a Swiss army knife for them towards the end of the season I don't think that's impossible but I do see him as someone that could also just be someone that they don't rush as much develop him as a starter and he becomes just a well-rounded Tough to hit for lefties, but good enough with the field of pitch to get righties out as well, and is just a middle-of-the-rotation type of starter. I like him as much, if not more, than Libertor. And I'm very interested to see how the Cardinals play it here because there's a couple different development tracks you could probably have with a polished college arm like Cooper Jerpy, who still has some upside and some intrigue there as well. The next pick is a high schooler who I am very very much a fan of. And I thought he'd go a little bit earlier. I heard anything from 14 to 24. Obviously, this was the back end of the expectation here. Brandon Barrera out of American Heritage High School in South Florida, which is, of course, most recently produced some of the big names like Mark Vientos as well as Tristan Casas and others and just is a pipeline for ridiculous talent almost all the time. Barrera is just the latest addition to that. And while he doesn't have as much physical projection as some of the other pitchers in the draft class, is the most advanced high school pitcher in the class, and I don't think it's it's remotely close. Left-hander with a good feel for three pitches, fastball that he commands east-west, smooth mechanics, athletic, has all of the intangibles you kind of look for in a pitcher, knows himself really well for a young pitcher. That was impressive to watch in some of his starts as well. Was just seeing how if one pitch wasn't working for him, how he could quickly kind of adapt what he's going to and, and just really... Again, it kind of goes to the pitchability side of things, but he'll throw any pitch in any count when he's got all of them working for him as well. But when he doesn't have his best stuff, finds ways to get outs. That's not something you usually see from a high school pitcher uh, because they're usually just used to dominating with the fastball or one secondary pitch. Very excited about this pick by the Blue Jays. I like what he brings to that organization. And should be the quickest climber of all of the high school or prep arms that were selected in this draft. With the 24th pick, we saw the Boston Red Sox likely underslot uh, with their first round selection. They go with Mikey Romero a high schooler out of Orange Lutheran High School. And, uh, we, we saw this similar kind of move. I don't think it was as much of a surprise as the Nick York selection in the late first round in 2020, but we've seen Boston like to go with the high schoolers. Again, we saw them go with Tristan Casas a couple years before that. They like high schoolers in the first round for the most part. At least we've seen that in several different occasions when it comes to offensive prospects, and it's worked pretty well for them. I know York took a bit of a step back this year, but overall it has worked pretty well for them. Romero is... Intriguing left handed hitting shortstop out of California. Track record of hitting on the summer circuit, kind of similar to some of the other high school shortstops, just maybe not with as much to dream on tools wise, but also similar with the question of impact. You know, how much power is in there? But the difference is, I think he is more of a glove guy. I think you can dream on the defense a bit more. Could be an above average to plus defender at short, above average field to hit, but we'll see how the speed and the power tick in here, probably not as exciting of an athlete as some of the other prep shortstops. But again, one of those situations where I want to see what the signing bonus looks like, then it might be a little bit more interesting to see where things shake out. Because if he gets close to full slot value, probably a little bit of a reach. But if he is getting a, a decent amount under slot value, then I do like the pick if they really do like the profile of Romero. And I do think he is a higher floor prep high schooler for a different reason. For Cole Young, it's because of the hit tool. For Romero, it's because of the glove but I think the bat is, is no slouch either. With the 25th pick, we saw the New York Yankees surprise and take an outfielder, Spencer Jones, from Vanderbilt. And Jones was a two-way player for a while. He's a big dude with huge, huge upside. And you can understand why the Yankees might like somebody like Spencer Jones, who's 6'7", 225, who can run at an above-average speed and also puts up insane exit velos. Because it kind of sounds like Aaron Judge. Obviously, he's got a long ways to go there. But you can see why they would like the 6'7", 230-pound athletic profile from Jones. Now, focusing more on the offensive side of things, he has put up exit v as high as 116 miles an hour, which would be among the the best in the entire draft class. He has a a little bit of a ways to go when it comes to shortening his swing, being a little bit more under control, controlling all of his body. But also, we saw Aaron Judge need a lot of uh, work on those things as well coming out of Fresno State. Jones is an upside pick here that I think the Yankees look at. They're confident in their ability to develop. They're confident in their ability to help him out and kind of, I guess, train him in a similar way that they did to Aaron Judge and some of their other really exciting offensive prospects. And Jones has as much upside as anybody in this draft, but also is as polarizing as anybody in this draft. There's a legitimate chance that, you know, the swing could be too long and he can't cover the top of the zone. And he has his struggles against professional pitching or there's a chance that the Yankees can help him kind of work through it, develop. He's going to be a little bit more of a slow burn than the other college bats, but could still turn into a very, very exciting prospect. Yankees very much betting on the development here, and this is one of those where we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. With the 26th pick, the Chicago White Sox went with a local kid, Noah Schultz, out of Oswego East High School, which is in Illinois. And this is probably one of the tallest guys in the draft. Actually, the first seven-footer was drafted. I think ever. I don't know if we've ever seen a seven-footer. Maybe we've had a seven-footer drafted, but never had a seven-footer in the big leagues. Regardless, out of St. Leo in the fourth round, I believe the Orioles, somebody took a seven-footer, which is crazy. I'll talk about that on another episode. But Noah Schultz is 6'9", 220 pounds, at Oswego High School, like I said, in Illinois, drafted by the White Sox. So they must have seen plenty of him. I'm assuming uh, that he wasn't too far away from them. They probably saw a lot of Noah Schultz. And anytime you have this kind of projection, his kid was committed to Vanderbilt, um, seems to, you know, Release from a Randy Johnson type of slot. I think MLB Pipeline had that comparison because he gets uh, that same sort of extension and release point and physical uh, like reminiscence of him at 6'9", 220 But obviously does not have that kind of explosiveness. That being said, from that re- release point, he does snap a very nasty sweeping slider with a ton of depth. That if you're a lefty, good luck. But if you're a righty it will back leg you, it'll be really tough, or he can backdoor you as well. I think that pitch is going to be a dominant one and almost guarantees him a good chance at being a nasty reliever, but the fastball sits more in the 88 to 92 range. I think that it's going to tick up as he continues to mature and, and continues to grow physically. And if he can even sit in the 92 to 94 range with his, uh you know, extension that he's able to generate and the slider that he has, and already like uh, at least some sort of a feel for a changeup, given that he's a guy that probably didn't have to throw it much in Illinois with a 90 mile an hour fastball or close to it and that slider. If he can develop the changeup, those three pitches, the difficult release point, six-nine, ton of extension, there's plenty to like here. But you know, it's a risky profile. It's it's a tough profile to develop. Uh, but the White Sox going with some upside here. He was not considered, I don't think, by many as a top 40 prospect in the draft. So again, another one of those nods to the slot value and see where that what that looks like. But I mean, anytime you get a six-nine pitcher with that tough release point, I'm intrigued. Another pick where it looks like we probably saw an underslot at 27 is the Milwaukee Brewers with Eric Brown Jr. out of Coastal Carolina. This is another floor over ceiling late first round selection. And I like it because he he probably moves, he's, he's listed as a shortstop, probably moves over to second base, but at second base would be a plus plus defender. Good instincts both defensively and at the plate where he makes really good swing decisions and has the ability, I think, to hit for some average and a little bit of power as well, especially if he makes it up to Milwaukee in that stadium. There's probably 20 to 25 home run potential there and, and a good field to hit and a guy that's probably going to get on base at a pretty good clip. Coastal Carolina has been a sneaky pipeline, uh, a guy that played in the Cape League for Micah at ketaliers so got some looks at him. But I, I do like Eric Brown. I think that is a solid selection. Interested on the signing bonus because he was more of a 50 to, to 60 range ranked prospect in this draft. But if you're getting a high floor bat that you like that could play really, really good defense at second, or you could try to give him a shot to stick it short, there's there's plenty to like with, with Eric Brown Jr. and that pick by the Milwaukee Brewers. With the Astros at 28, they go out and get Drew Gilbert out of Tennessee. And if you know, Drew Gilbert was the kid that turned and looked at the umpire and said, that's effing terrible, that's effing terrible, and got tossed in the Super Regionals, I believe. Uh, but apparently, you know, earns really high marks for his makeup and his work ethic, and everyone kind of has those moments, and it's it's really not going to be something that makes or breaks a player or his draft stock, clearly, as, as Gilbert went 28th. And Gilbert is probably one of those guys that I was expecting to be the under slot candidate in the middle of the first round, but given uh, the presence of Delauder and some of these other guys that I think teams would just prefer at slot value, it ends up with Gilbert going in the 28 range. And it was either going to be under slot in the middle of the first or about at slot value in the late first or compensation round. We see the Astros go with the safe bat lefty above average speed, Really, really good bat-to-ball skills, some impact there that we continue to see. He's a little maxed. He's probably maxed out physically, but I see 20 home run potential, really good ability to hit for average, good tools across the board. It's really hard to poke a hole in Drew Gilbert's game, but you know, maybe there's not really one tool that jumps off the page. Maybe you could say the hit tool is the most impressive, but at the same time, not really a hole, like I said, that you can really poke and, and find an issue with him there. At the 29th pick is a guy I know, I will be full disclosure, know the least about. And, of course, it was the Rays who made this selection. Xavier Isaac, a high schooler out of East Forsyth, I believe, High School in North Carolina. They dropped a first baseman, 6'4", 240 pounds, and missed much of his junior season in the whole summer circuit with a foot injury. So we didn't see much of him there. And then, you know, he showed the Rays enough, uh, I guess, in his senior season or leading into it to... Take him in the first round. He was ranked, I believe, 100 and something, the ranked prospect in 113, 115 range for MLB Pipeline and their top prospect rankings, but if we weren't, it's, it's don't doubt the Ray's ability to identify we see it now with Carson Williams, another guy that looked really good that didn't have as much helium uh, and didn't, was not as more was not as much of a well- regarded name in the draft and now has looked like one of the, the more exciting young prospects in baseball uh, that is off to a great start Xavier Isaac he's a big dude some, from the limited video I've seen big time impact, but he's obviously staying at first base left-handed bat we'll see I mean that's all I can say is we'll see interested on the slot value probably going to be pretty low. I'm assuming it's going to be well below slot value here uh, for for Xavier Isaac. But interesting pick and could be a big-time masher. Uh, but, yeah, just the, the Rays are being the Rays here at 29. At 30 was a very outside-the-box pick by the San Francisco Giants. They go with a two-way player out of Connecticut. He went to UConn. Reggie Crawford missed the entire season last year. Otherwise, he probably could have been a top-10 pick. He is a pretty insane athlete. I mean, a dude that... Before going down with Tommy John surgery, missing the season last year was up to 100 on the mound and then wipe out slider as well. And then big time power as a left handed bat, which is just crazy. So 100 on the mound, big time exit velos from his bat as well and a nasty slider. So naturally, the Giants draft him as a two way player. If you literally look at the position description, it's TWP two-way player so the Giants are going to try to use him as a two-way guy similar to like we're seeing the Pirates try with Bubba Chandler and as Crawford you know comes back from that Tommy John surgery on the mound and also just I'm sure he's been getting his swings in for a while now Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how they use him is it more of a reliever and offensive guy is it starter and offensive guy what position are they going to have him at there's a lot of things that I'm looking forward to seeing but there's no doubt about it that you are just getting a freak athlete with a guy that can from the left side on the mound with the left arm run it up to 100 and then a lefty bat with plus power, and he can run a little bit too. <laughs> I mean, it, they are drafting just a premium, premium athlete and kind of seeing how things go, and I'm here for that. Leave it to the San Francisco Giants. They do a good job of thinking outside the box, and this is just the latest edition of them doing that. That'll do it for this kind of first-round wrap-up. I'm really excited to talk about the rest of the draft with you and get into all of the other selections especially as the slot values continue to you know become public knowledge and and kind of we can see the strategy of some of these first round selections and how it helped teams with their second third fourth fifth and beyond round selections as well we're going to talk about some of the best drafts that we saw best draft classes some of the more interesting approaches we've seen from teams and we will be doing that the rest of this week as always thank you for listening and I look forward to talking prospects and i drafts draft with you tomorrow